Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, it's our third anniversary. First up, a review of the butterscotch cake with salted caramel buttercream. Let's find out if this sheet cake enthralled Andrea when she ate it as much as it did when she read the recipe title aloud. Then we'll introduce a new version of a cake I always choose for my family celebrations, the chocolate Guinness cake. Will this simple one-layer version match my family's much-beloved towering three-layer version? Stay tuned to find out. Finally, we're minding our manners and our chemistry in a segment we're calling Pass the Salt, Please. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Happy anniversary, Stefan. Happy anniversary, Andrea. Three years have gone by in an absolute flash. It is so exciting. And a huge thank you to our listeners who have been with us since the beginning. We're hoping you've had as much fun as we have had. Oh, absolutely. It's so much fun to see all of the old favorites who've been with us since November of 2016. And every, feels like every week, new faces are cropping up. And we just love welcoming everyone to the community. Yeah, we really do. And since this is a landmark episode, episode 150, I thought we could throw out some other numbers that are kind of exciting when we think about our show. Okay, yes. So first of all, even though it's episode 150, I think we should point out that we've actually produced 162 (laughs) shows. I mean, that's 12 more. It's 12 more. We do our bonuses. We have our intro. And that means we have baked and reviewed over 150 recipes. And those episodes have been downloaded over 122,000 times. We have over 1,000 people engaged with us on social media. And so in our Instagram and in our Facebook, we've received over 70 ratings and 30 reviews on Apple Podcasts. And we love those. We love those, love those. In fact, If you want to give us an anniversary present, pop over right now and write us a review. Oh, I love that. What a great idea. Um, We also have a newsletter, and over 100 people subscribe to that newsletter. You can go to our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and sign up for it there, and you'll get a weekly email from us when our show drops. And then, Andrea, we have listeners in 47 countries around the world, and that Uh, includes countries in every continent except Antarctica. So, Antarctic listeners, (laughs) we need your help. Doesn't cozying up with preheated just sound like the perfect way to while away those frozen days and nights? It does. (laughs) It would be amazing if you're traveling down to Antarctica or anything and you want to do us a huge solid download our show (laughs) from that last continent. We'll have them all. And speaking of downloading shows, Stefan, can you guess which one of our episodes is our most popular of all time, at least in terms of number of downloads? Okay. That's actually pretty tricky. I think for a while it may have been 
the Biscoff Pie episode from season one, or at least mm-hmm. that was what that was an episode people were constantly kind of referencing. Yes. Um, I think another popular one is the roasted strawberry buttermilk ice cream from our first yes. frozen month. Um, but I think I'm gonna go with either pie or chocolate. Am I in the arena? You are in the arena and late breaking episode 115, the salted chocolate sophisticate. Stefan, that's the episode where we reviewed those chocolate cookies made with the rye flour. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. And you know, now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's an alternative flour. It Mm -hmm. is a chocolate cookie. Yes. And it's a cookie too. And you know, for all the things we bake, cookies are... Uh, something that you know lots of people are always looking for so that was from our crazy for chocolate month uh, this march march 2019 yeah speaking of top downloads and crazy for chocolate that was our number three most downloaded episode okay and then number two was that episode about the lazy daisy cake so it's just so much fun to see what people are enjoying listening to and definitely chocolate seems to be a popular theme so we'll tuck that away and make sure we sprinkle our chocolate over our listeners on a regular basis and you know i wonder if lazy daisy crops up not only was it a delicious one bowl cake but i wonder if people do searches for like lazy bakes or something like that you know like they mean easy and so that's the word that kind of crops up and catches their eye Mm, good idea I hadn't even thought about that Mm -hmm. yeah well that is so much fun you and I both get really giddy when we start looking at our statistics and diving into all of the numbers and (laughs) it's been an amazing season season three we did so many fun things and reached so many people and now we're here kicking off season four Andrea yeah, it's pretty exciting, and we are kicking it off with One Layer Wonders, and so this is a cake month, which is very exciting for me, just like we did back in the beginning of our show. So it's coming full circle. Speaking of that first cake during cake month and One Layer Wonders, this week we baked the butterscotch cake with salted caramel buttercream, which, as you said last episode in episode 149 when we released this, those are four of your all-time favorite words. Yeah. <laughs> Butterscotch, salt, caramel, and buttercream. Just throw those into a blender and anything you come out with, I'm going to be excited about trying it. And interestingly enough, like some of those compound words are pretty great when you split them apart too, right? Butter and scotch, butter and cream. So (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I did notice last week when we were talking in episode 149, of course, how much butter was in this recipe. So um, I'm not surprised now that you Mm -hmm. pointed out that it's in the title twice because it certainly was in the recipe more than once. Well, let's get down to it. Yeah. This was a cake with a lot of components. So it was a 13 by 9 cake that was fairly straightforward on the surface of it. And then it had a Swiss meringue buttercream that incorporated a homemade caramel sauce. Andrea, since you chose this recipe, why don't you kick us off on the review and talk us through making this one layer wonder? Well, I am happy to do that. And I am going to talk you through in what seems to be backwards motion because that's how this cake actually comes together. And I only learned that because I did it incorrectly. So this is not just one recipe, it's three recipes. And I have a different rating for each component. You'll Mm. be uh, pleased to know. Okay. For the butterscotch cake, I have a four-star rating. For the salted caramel buttercream, I have a three-star rating. Okay. And for the salted caramel sauce, I have a five-star rating. And that's where I'm going to start. Whoa. Okay, go for it. 
And the reason I am starting with what I thought would be the end is because if you read the recipe all the way through, which is great advice and something I never managed to do. I don't know if I have attention deficit disorder or I think what I actually do is I skim. I don't read carefully all the way through. But what, what you will learn is when you make the salted caramel sauce, you get to the very final instruction, and it says, let cool completely. Yes. And then if you look at the buttercream recipe, when you get to step two, it says, add the salted caramel sauce into the buttercream. So that needs to be ready to go when you are to step two in the frosting. Yes. Got it. So step two, in my mind, is making the salted caramel buttercream. And Stefan, you were great about pointing out last week that this can be made ahead. Is that what you actually did? It is. And I'm really glad that I that I did do that because the icing or the frosting here really was the hardest component for me. Yeah. And I was very happy that I was able to then take a pause <laughs> with it. After I exactly. kind of made my way through the trial by fire yeah. of Swiss meringue. So for our listeners who haven't attempted this cake, I just wanted to throw out there that if I was to do this again, I would make the caramel sauce first. I would make the buttercream next with the caramel sauce. And then I would give myself a little break. And then I would make the cake. But in reality, I did it in the reverse way, which caused me some problems. So I will start with the cake. And I did think the cake was fairly straightforward. I love the fact that the recipe has both the cups and the teaspoons as well as the grams. So I did use my scale. And I thought everything turned out really well. I, of course, have no problem getting butterscotch morsels. So I thought that was, uh, in terms of ingredients, you know, that's where you start. You melt your butterscotch morsels and a little bit of water. I didn't do mine in the microwave. I did mine just on the stovetop over low heat. And you're going to let that cool. There's a lot of letting cool. So <laughs> yeah, maybe next time when I read ahead, I'm going to highlight those phrases because, you know, every time you do that, you realize like, oh, I'm, I'm stopping here. Yeah, I'm with you on the cake, Andrea. I thought it came together really easily. As you guys know, I had to search out butterscotch morsels, which were a bit of an investment buy for me, but nonetheless, they're in my house now, so I'll be looking for (laughs) other things to use the rest of that bag with. Yeah, and then it was was really a very straightforward cake. It's a 13 by 9, and I would like to point out, too, that you're making a big cake. It is. So Mm -hmm. that's something to think about as far as when you're going to be serving this as well, which I may not have done a great job of. Okay, good to know. Something to look forward to with your investment morsels. It says in step five to bake until the uh, you know toothpick test comes out clean about 35 minutes. Mine was more like 40, almost 42. It was still really super wobbly in the center after 30. So I stuck it in for about another almost 15. Oh, you're reading my mind because I'm looking at my notes here. When I pulled mine out at 35 minutes, it was very wobbly. I, at that point, switched my oven that had been at just the regular bake at 325. I switched it to convection and yeah. I did an additional seven minutes. So mine was 42 minutes total to get to the point where it was cooked. Sounds exactly the same. Yeah. So just watch that. Ovens run different and make sure that you are using that 35 minutes as a guideline, but you may need to go longer. Sounds like we both did. So that is the cake. And I thought the cake turned out really well. It was did make it in my 13 by 9 pan. I did use my parchment paper and I thought it was fabulous. On to the buttercream. Pause. Pause. <laughs> So I've never made a Swiss meringue buttercream before. My first problem that I ran into was the first instruction, which is in your stand mixer, you whisk together three large egg whites and sugar by hand. And, um, well, I don't do anything by hand. So (laughs) that was 
just kind of the first problem. I actually tried to do it in my stand mixer, but three egg whites don't make enough volume for the whisk to really get down in there. And mm, so yeah. after I attempted to do, the, do that, I was like, oh, that's why they have you do it by hand. So then once you have that whisk, you put it over a saucepan of simmering water and you cook it whisking occasionally until it reaches 155 degrees Fahrenheit or 68 degrees centigrade on a candy thermometer. So Stefan, right. did that work okay for you? I didn't have any problems there. That was fine for me. I would like to point out that you want to choose a saucepan that can fit your stand mixer. Yes. Yes. I had to switch out. That's a good point. I forgot about that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So because my stand mixer bowl tapers kind of at the bottom. Yeah. I think that's the standard. I think we both have KitchenAids, and I think that's the standard. Mine, my problem wasn't just the taper. It was the handle. And so the first saucepan that I had pulled out, if I had put the stand mixer bowl over that particular saucepan, the handle hit the edge, and so it was tilted, which might have been fine, yep. but I just thought, eh, you know, I don't really want that. So I then pulled out a bigger pan so that it I could fit it in a little bit better. Right. And I would say mine tilted a little bit, but I didn't have any problems. It took about five minutes for that to come to the temperature. And another caution here, your bowl will be hot, so don't grab the bottom of it. It's been right in the boiling water. Yeah, good point. <laughs> then you put that bowl right back on your stand mixer, and with the whisk attachment, you beat it at high speed until stiff peaks form. That was not a problem, but the second instruction until stiff peaks form and bowl is cool to the touch, about five minutes. Yeah. I don't know about you, but my bowl did not cool to the touch. My bowl was still warm after the five minutes. And mine came to stiff peaks after only about three, and my bowl was still warm. Okay. Yeah. So same, same. And that may have been the issue I had with the next step, Andrea, which is to add the butter two tablespoons at a time. And this is three sticks of butter you're adding here, two tablespoons at a time, beating until combined. Mm -hmm. I could never get my butter to combine fully. Oh, I did not have that problem. Mine combined quite nicely. Was your butter softened and cubed? Softened and cubed. Huh. And then I was getting to the point I was, I don't know what would have happened if I just had over whisked this. Is that a thing that would happen? Anyway, my ultimate frosting had little chunks of butter in it. They talk about if the buttercream breaks, you can beat it two or three minutes more and the emulsion will come back together. But yeah, I just didn't have a problem at all. I added that butter about two tablespoons at a time. I didn't worry too much about it. And I just kept beating it. And then I did have to sit it a little while because that's when I ran into the next instruction of add the salted caramel sauce. And I went, oh, I haven't made that yet. <laughs> so okay, yeah, right. that was my first problem. And as you guys know, I mentioned in last episode, I thought I was going to use a prepared caramel sauce. That is what I did. So I added it there with no problem about waiting. Now, I was taking bake from scratch at their word and making this ahead. So I refrigerated it. And at that point, I did notice the graininess. I thought maybe that's what splitting is. So when I took it back out of the fridge, I beat it again. And again, I just could not get rid of those butter lumps. What kind of butter did you use? My European style butter. I thought about using the European style butter, but there was so much butter in this. I just felt like it was already so rich. I just used regular butter. So that's the only difference that I can think about. Maybe yeah. that's yeah, why we maybe had it was a too there. fatty. I would say it tasted great, but little flecks of butter, while it seems like that would be a delightful thing. Mm, no. <laughs> it, it was it was a strange texture. Yeah, we don't want that in our frosting. So the reason I gave this buttercream a three star, this might be one of those situations where it's like you like eating sausage but you don't like knowing how the sausage is made. <laughs> 
I too love, much better. I love buttercream frosting, but when I realized that I was essentially just eating three sticks of butter yeah. with a cup yeah. of sugar and some egg whites, I sort of lost my appetite for it. So yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it just didn't didn't grab me, and that's why it got a lower rating. But now on to the salted caramel sauce. So you ended up using a prepared sauce. Do you remember which one you purchased? Was it one you would recommend? It's actually the carnation caramel, canned caramel. Oh yeah, I've okay. used it. I use it for Nigella's no churn caramel bourbon ice cream. I really like it. Yes. So I had some in the house already and I grabbed that. I think it worked great. I like the taste of it. I, I thought the texture was fine. So yeah, I would recommend if, if you don't want to make a homemade caramel or you're a little bit put off by that element of this recipe, grab one that you like. I think it's going to be fine. And I'm glad you save yourself a little bit of time because this cake was pretty intensive. Yeah. But I'm a little disappointed only because I think the salted caramel sauce was the best thing about this entire oh. recipe. So I do wish okay. you had been able to try it. Well, I'll give it a try. I will. Yeah. Then. I mean, yeah. it is a recipe in and of itself. So there's no reason not to make it and uh, you know eat it by the spoonful, as I found myself doing. So no I'll problem. just <laughs> run through it really quick. You use uh, some heavy whipping cream and salt. Heat that over very low heat and then remove that and set it aside and then in another saucepan you heat sugar and water over high heat being careful not to splash the sides of the pan and this is where you're making your homemade caramel yeah and then with the remaining water you're brushing down the sides of the pan you're stirring to help the sugar dissolve but once it starts boiling you don't stir it anymore and you cook it until a desired light amber color is reached and your candy thermometer is at 330 degrees fahrenheit i tell you that happens in a second Right, right. You know, it's like you're you're monitoring and you're like, oh, I'm at 260, I'm at 265, I'm at 270. You know, it's just sort of creeping up. And all of a sudden, it's at 330. And I think next time I might pull it right before it gets there because I do feel like my karma was a little bit darker than I would have liked. I would not describe it as light amber. And I think it does maybe continue to cook even yes. if you snatch it off the burner right away. You know, it's yeah. still so hot that it's just going to raise the temperature. Just what's that called? Like the ambient temperature or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. So it's going to continue to raise. So good point there to just you're seeing it coming really close. Yep. Maybe now it's just time to, get to back off. Yeah. yeah. And then you add that warm cream mixture. Now, this is where I warned you guys last week, be careful. Make sure you're using a pan with very high sides because it will completely bubble up. I find right. that part so exciting. And <laughs> you whisk it to combine it. And then, my goodness, we do not yet have enough butter in this cake. Let's throw <laughs> some more in. So you have to add in six more tablespoons of butter, which is, you know, almost another stick. And that whisk together quite nicely. Throw in a little bit of vanilla and let that cool completely because you're going to, as I mentioned earlier, add it into the buttercream. Right. How about you talk now about the actual assembly? Yeah, then assembling this cake came together fairly easily. And I thought it was a really pretty finished cake. Yes. You have your 13 by 9, and it's kind of a golden toffee color with the butterscotch morsels. And my cake was very moist, really nice springy cake. And then you have this kind of billowing buttercream. Mm. And then you can also spoon on some additional caramel, and you have your sea salt flakes after that. I thought it was gorgeous. I thought it was incredibly rich. And I thought, Andrea, it would be really good even without that frosting. Now, you mentioned that the caramel sauce was so great. What about just serving the cake with a little caramel sauce? I think that would be fabulous. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I say go for it. I think, too, this is a cake that may actually work as like a brunch. Something about it seemed kind of coffee cake-ish to me. In fact, I don't know why this would be, but it reminded me of the pumpkin bunt. I mean, there's no pumpkin or anything veggie related at all in this but something about it I just thought you know what this is the kind of cake without that frosting that you could serve you know 24 hours a day yeah I think the colors and just the flavors and the smell and the salt it all just sort of said fall to me yes and yeah it's really I, seasonal I mentioned earlier I gave the cake a four star the only reason I didn't give it a five star is I didn't think it was as moist as I would have liked. So that's interesting that you did find it to be quite moist. I'm wondering when I turned my fan on and gave it that additional seven minutes, maybe I should have just given it an additional seven minutes at the 325 and not turn the fan on. I might have done just a touch over bake on it. Yeah, I thought the texture was was really nice and really springy. And then again, you're making a huge cake. A 13 by 9 cake feeds a lot of people. And we did have uh, my sister-in-law was here and she enjoyed it with us. But we had a lot of cake left over. So this would be such an ideal cake to take to a potluck or some kind of large gathering. Because, I mean, I think you could probably easily get 24 squares. What do you think about serving? Yes, I ran into a similar thing. I actually had a big group of people to serve it to the first time I made it. But unfortunately, there were also about five other desserts at that event. So I just don't think very much of it got eaten. I cut it into small squares. I think you're right. I either had 24 or 36 because it was so rich. And I took some then to my daughter's school and dropped those off. I took some to a United Way event that I was doing. It's the cake that kept on giving. The cake that kept on giving. It was just as good a week later. Of course, every time before I delivered it somewhere else, I'd have a piece to make sure it was still good. And uh, (laughs) here's my only caveat on eating the cake throughout the week. This is not, in my opinion, a good cake cold. And I do believe the reason is because essentially then you're just eating a cold stick of butter when it comes to the frosting. Like that, the buttercream frosting cold, I do not like the texture or the flavor of. I agree. It's off-putting. And what we did here was just scrape the frosting off. Okay. Well, there you go. (laughs) And then it's delicious cold, I'm here to tell you. (laughs) Well, this was quite a cake to kick off a fourth season. And I like that it had a lot of different elements. I think I would definitely make the cake again. I think you're definitely on board with the caramel. I'm interested to give that a try as well. So it's nice that you can kind of pick and choose what you want to bake along here. Yes, definitely. And I do think it's a great celebration cake. I think it's a great potluck cake. I think it's, like you said, maybe even a good brunch cake. And feel free to play around with it. It is a lot of fun. It definitely falls in the category of a one-layer wonder, without question. Oh, for sure. Up next week is a chocolate Guinness cake. This comes from Nigella. Stefan, this is a recipe that I picked, and I had to twist your arm a little bit because... (laughs) You have a much-beloved chocolate Guinness cake recipe in your family, and you were a little bit concerned about, you know, why do I want to make something, and then I'm just going to be comparing side by side. I was interested in this because it looked a lot easier than I'm guessing Mm. your family recipe is. So why don't you introduce this cake a little bit and tell us how it's different from the one you make on the regular. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at first glance, this does seem incredibly easier than the one I make. The first reason is that you don't even need a mixer for this cake, I'm delighted to say. Right, yeah. (laughs) 
So this recipe is available online, which we'll link to, but it's also from Nigella's wonderful 2004 cookbook called Feast that I happen to have. And how much do we love a woman who has a section in her cookbook called the Chocolate Cake Hall of Fame? Oh, yes. (laughs) My kind of book. Oh, yes. She has a number of really delicious chocolate cakes, and this is one of them. Now, I love that it's a one layer, and it also is frosted with a cream cheese frosting, very different than the one that I'm used to making, which is a chocolate cake with a chocolate frosting. And Stefan, I was pretty sure I remembered that yours included a chocolate frosting. Yeah. And I enjoyed reading the notes from Nigella where she said that I've eaten versions of this cake made up like a chocolate sandwich cake stuffed and slathered in a rich chocolate icing, but I think that can take away from its dark majesty. (laughs) (laughs) That you love her writing. Yeah, and I mean, the other reason that she is frosting it with cream cheese frosting is to mimic the look you get when you pour a pint of Guinness. Yeah, I thought that was fun. It is that dark beer with a very creamy head on top. So visually, I think it's going to be really pretty. As far as I can tell, Andrea, this is a pretty straightforward cake. You are using a 23-centimeter springform tin. That's a really standard cake tin here. I'm guessing you might not have that one. Well, it's a 9-inch. Is yours a springform? Mine's not a springform. Okay. But I already was going to tell you that I might not make a single cake. Just because of my experience with last week, I'm thinking about instead of making one 9-inch, I might make two smaller cakes, or I might even make cupcakes. I haven't decided yet, but I'm not sure I'm going to make a whole other cake because I don't have any events coming up, and I don't want to have an enormous cake in my house for just the three of us. Got it. And my mom's coming into town, so I will be happy to make a cake for her to be here. Perfect. You know, after last week, this seems so straightforward. You have your cake, which is made up of uh, 250 mils of Guinness, butter, cocoa powder, caster sugar, and a small pot of sour cream, two eggs, a tablespoon of vanilla that's going to be in such a nice rich vanilla flavor, some plain flour, and bicarbonate of soda, which is baking soda. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued with the frosting on this. It is kind of the antithesis of our Swiss meringue because it is cream cheese, mm-hmm. icing sugar, and whipping cream. There's no butter in this frosting. Stefan, for listeners who haven't been with us for a long time, I want to talk a little bit about cream cheese. Let's do it. So when you moved from Seattle to London, one of the first challenges that you ran into is (laughs) not being able to find what I would think of as traditional cream cheese or a Philadelphia-style cream cheese, just your standard block that you can get in every grocery store here in the States. And the operative word there is block. I can find cream cheese, but it is what we in the States would refer to as a whipped cream cheese. It comes in the tub, and it's definitely just a softer consistency. Because I thought, you know, this recipe is from someone who's living in the UK, and obviously she would have some challenges and not want to put out a recipe that contains something that your average reader couldn't get. So I was curious when she had cream cheese in the recipe, but you're saying it's not that you can't get cream cheese, it's just that getting the block is difficult. But I had that same concern also, Andrea, Mm -hmm. and here is my caution to folks like me living in the UK or where block-style cream cheese is not prevalent. I would be really cautious about adding all of that cream in because I think it's going to be softer already Mm -hmm. than using a block-style cream cheese. Mm -hmm. So I would just be cautious and maybe add in that cream a little bit at a time and see where the consistency is. And maybe 
we won't need to use it all because we're starting with a softer cream cheese. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So since you're starting with a softer cream cheese, you might not want to add the full amount of double cream because it might get too soft. Okay. I would take it cautiously there, not just dump it all in, but go, you know, see how it goes. Well, here's the funny thing, and I don't think I realized until just now and put two and two together. I always use whipped cream cheese when there's an instruction and a recipe for cream cheese because that's what we use on the regular. So that's I what you have. Always have it in my house. Yeah. Well, then you're going to be right in line with this recipe, <laughs> the original recipe. Yeah. The only thing I'm going to have to go get is Guinness. That's not something I keep regularly. And then I did want to ask about caster sugar. Is that just regular yeah. sugar or do I need to do something to it? Yeah, that's your granulated sugar. Okay. Remember, we will have a link to these recipes we've talked about today. The butterscotch cake with salted caramel buttercream from Bake From Scratch, as well as Nigella Lawson's chocolate Guinness cake, originally in her Feast cookbook, if you happen to have that. If not, online. We'll link to that in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 150, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, would you please pass the salt? Gladly, my friend. One of the first rules of table etiquette I recall learning was that when someone asks you for the salt, you should pass them the pepper as well. So in my brain, salt and pepper are inextricably linked, except when it comes to baking. Yes. Not that I'm against pepper in my baked goods. I mean, you do love your savories. It's true. But for today's segment, which we're calling Pass the Salt, Please, we're going to focus on salt only. So let's start with the necessity of salt in baking. If you make a cake and you forget the eggs, you'll definitely notice. It won't rise as much, the ingredients may not bind together, and it will be dry instead of moist. But leaving out the salt won't have as much effect on the structure of your cakes and cookies. But you will definitely notice. Salt serves several purposes in baked goods. It enhances flavor. It brings out the best in your other ingredients. Remember, salt is one of the five basic tastes your taste buds notice, along with sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. So while too much salt can make things taste salty, the correct amount of salt just makes things taste better. I love this quote from Samran Nasrat, the cookbook author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Salt, it's fundamental to all good cooking. It enhances flavor and even makes food taste more like itself. In short, salt brings food to life. Learn to use it well, and your food will taste great. Oh, I love that cookbook. And that was one on your 19 for 19 baking resolutions list. Yes. And her Netflix show, if you haven't checked it out, it is so excellent. Mm -hmm. Now, another way that salt is essential in baking is when it balances out the bitterness in foods like coffee, grapefruit, and bittersweet chocolate. Ooh, three of my favorites. No wonder I like salt. <laughs> in fact, I didn't realize how much I liked it until I moved to London, where they typically bake eat, prepare food with less salt than we do in the U.S. Recipes here will often leave salt out entirely, so I've become adept at adding a small amount to U.K. recipes, though I think I'm probably still using less salt overall. And how much salt to use is a crucial consideration. I've seen all sorts of recommendations from a quarter teaspoon of salt for every cup of flour to one and an eighth teaspoon of salt for every cup of flour. And of course, that recommendation changes depending on the type of salt you're using. One teaspoon of fine sea salt is equal to two teaspoons of kosher salt. My method is always to start out undersalting because I figure I can always add more salt, but I can't take it away once I've added it. I do try to follow the recipe first, but you know, that's sometimes hard for me. <laughs> 
For example, the recipe from my favorite chocolate chip cookies contains two cups of flour and half a teaspoon of salt, but I often use a full teaspoon of salt in it. Oh, I think I saw some of those chocolate chip cookies you posted on our Instagram feed at Preheated Pod back when you were visiting your in-laws in Arizona. Oh, those were actually my sister-in-law's cookies, and they were delicious. Okay. Now, those cookies are a great example of another use of salt in baked goods, and that is when you use salt as a finishing ingredient. Oh, right. She had a sprinkle of Meldon sea salt on top of her cookies, and they were so pretty. Yes. Those large, flaky salt crystals are the ones you want to decorate the top of a baked good, like cookies, chocolate cake, or my favorite, gray salt caramels. You can also use fleur de sel as a finishing salt, but please note, just because you're garnishing the top of your dessert with a few flakes of finishing salt, that doesn't mean you can cut back on the salt in the ingredients required for making the dessert. Oh, that's good to know. Malden sea salt, fleur de sel, gray salt, and I thought I was fancy when I switched from iodized table salt to kosher salt. I know. I grew up with table salt and baked with it, but now kosher salt is my go-to in all of my baked good recipes when I'm using salt as an ingredient in a batter or a dough. In fact, I use diamond kosher salt to be precise. Yeah, as opposed to, say, Morton kosher salt, which is another popular brand. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed some of my food magazines differentiating between the two and suggesting different salt measurements depending upon the brand. Yes, it all comes down to salt density. A tablespoon of table salt is 18 grams. Morton's kosher salt is 14 grams, whereas my favorite, Diamond Crystal, only weighs 9 grams. So you can see how following a recipe based on tablespoons rather than weight can get you into trouble with over or under salting. One more reason to love your kitchen scale. You and me both. And going back to finishing salts, I do want to give a shout out to a beautiful finishing salt I've been using lately. It comes from Jacobson Salt Company in Portland, Oregon, and they make an amazing collection of infused salts. I love using their lemon zest salt to top zucchini bread, their vanilla bean salt to top pumpkin pie, and their Pinot Noir salt on top of anything made with chocolate. Oh, it sounds so good. And pretty lightweight, like maybe you could put that in a little care package coming this way. (laughs) Hint, hint. Since Portland is a bit too far away for me to get to now, can I make my own infused salt? Yeah, absolutely. You can just take kosher salt, add your herbs or a dried spice, and grind them together in a blender. The best ratio seems to be about a teaspoon of spice or herb for each quarter cup of salt, but it's all up to you and your taste buds. Ooh, I'm getting an idea. Earl Grey infused salt. Ooh, to top our favorite Earl Grey shortbread from episode 61. Yes. Or perhaps you could create some Earl Grey caramels and top them with that special infused salt. The possibilities seem endless. Another trend I've noticed in some desserts is that they feature salt prominently to balance out the sweetness. Just like the salted butterscotch sauce we used to top our whiskey and chocolate souffles back in episode 105. Or the salted caramel buttercream that topped our cake today in episode 150. Sure. Yeah, sweet and salty is my favorite combo, so I'm a sucker for any recipes that promise a strong hit of salt. Salted brownies, chocolate cookies, even pretzels or bacon in a baked good will work for me. (laughs) Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our exploration of one of the most important ingredients you'll use in baking and that you'll share any of your favorite salty specialties with us. 
Drop us a note at host at preheatedpodcast.com, post in our Facebook listeners group, or leave us a voicemail message at 802-276-0788. And many thanks to Jenny from Pastry Chef Online, Samrin Nosrat, Serious Eats, and the Pioneer Woman for sharing their salty knowledge with all of us. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week you'll find out if Nigella's one-layer version of Stefan's most-loved chocolate Guinness cake is a new favorite in her household. We'll also introduce a new cake that's got veggies in it and is perfect for breakfast. Finally, we'll host a roundup of our most anticipated newly released cookbooks, just in time for holiday gift-giving. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Here's one of our latest reviews. It comes from McElwright, and it says, Can't stop listening. I love this podcast. Andrea and Stefan are so fun to listen to. I already love to bake, but preheated makes me love it even more. Listening makes me happy and calm. Love it. The best. Reading a review like that makes me happy and calm. Thank you, McElwright. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Actually, those were actually my... Actually, actually...